welcome to yet another episode of the new space india podcast as a part of mangalyaan's 6th anniversary in orbit as of september 24th we have jatin a prolific science writer and a public speaker who is extremely passionate about space exploration and especially the moon i've been following jatin's writing on the planetary society the wire science universe today the print and many other platforms and his advocacy for space exploration and moon settlements are especially very interesting from an indian perspective so i invited jatin to be a guest on the new space india podcast to discuss what has happened with india's space exploration roadmap over the last 10 years what are specifically some of the outcomes of the mangalyaan mission what can we learn from the mangalyaan mission for the future and what are some of the broader ideas that we can explore as a part of space exploration feel free to follow jatan's work on jatan.space you can also follow him on twitter at uncertain quark and i urge you to consider supporting him on patreon to help him continue his excellent work with science writing and space advocacy Jatin welcome to this episode of the New Space India podcast. Thank you for having me Arnadan. So let's uh, start this conversation by uh, getting a little bit of a background of yourself uh, to the audience and uh, you know you've uh, followed your work for uh, quite a while with respect to your uh, writing especially the science writing that you do is very refreshing. What got you into space science and uh, you know you you ended up in i know that you ended up in uh, team indus and uh, you've been writing independently for some time uh, tell us a little bit about your own background yeah sure so basically when i was in school i got interested in space and that was interesting in particular because my school decided to omit certain parts of the syllabus uh, from the science textbook and those turned out to be related to space exploration and the solar system and astronomy and they did that for 3 years in a row and i and i got curious as to why they are omitting such a thing and so one day i just decided to read those chapters my, myself regardless of the omission and so and that got me really interested in the subject and then one thing led to another i started reading more about it and then at some point i decided the, by the time my schooling was over i decided that i would i would want to become an astrophysicist and that's where i started pursuing physics as my for my graduation and post grad so that's how i got into physics and cosmology and astrophysics and space exploration in general uh, got interested in that but all the while in the background also i was interested in trying to explain the same concepts which got me uh, interested in it to everyone else that i could have a chat with so that got me slowly into blogging uh, about it and i just started a very you know rookie blog back i think 8 years ago or something like that and i started writing on the side that's what developed into team indus initially so what happened is after my masters in physics i was pursuing my uh, a research project in astrophysics just to get a hands on idea as a student as to what research looks like and on the side i was continuing to blog on medium at the time and there it took off lots of people started reading my articles and i was getting some sort of attraction which i did not get before so team indus they took notice of that and they decided to call me and, and eventually because of my physics background and interest in pure science i also took on roles which were 
related to technical work at team industry for instance you know what kind of science would the lander do there once it lands in a certain area which which landing site should we even target for from a scientific perspective and so on so that's how team indus developed and i was continuing to write on the side anyway even for team indus and even uh, on my own blog and that slowly led me to publishing on the wire first thanks to mukund and that's essentially how the freelance science writing journey began and then i think about 2 years or so from there uh, to this point today now i've i've sort of started doing it professionally now so and mostly try to stay focused on the science part of it because personally i think that uh, you know there's a lot of information in the world in general about the technology part of space exploration but a lot less is relatively communicated about the science part of it so that's where my personal interest lies and that's how I, what i try to cover in my writings via whatever publication i write for absolutely right i uh, totally agree with you there even for myself i think i have very little understanding personally of uh, any science with respect to you know space science and space exploration for that matter and it's always fascinating to see you know people like yourself write uh, some of these things where uh it's quite insightful from a lay person perspective and also for a person who's doing the space technology part to learn more on the space science uh, kind of things i wanted to use this conversation to dwell down into more of the space science and the mars exploration and you know lunar exploration and the potential there for for india to kick off this topic can you tell us uh, why Mars for example is such an attractive destination I think it boils down to three things with Mars one is that it's one of the nearest planets we have uh, apart from Venus that is so that's proximity definitely has something to do with it and the second thing is that it we know from uh, observations by orbiters and whatnot that Mars used to have flowing water on its surface in the past that and other things lead to it being a geologically diverse place a diverse planet much like the earth in many ways all of these three things together essentially make it a very attractive destination where if we take a look at our solar system and just look at all the objects and their properties and their behavior and the conditions there both past and present then we see that mars is the closest analog to earth right now can you give a quick background on some of the earliest missions to mars and what were the you know insights there from those missions yeah sure basically since after the uh, once the space age began and the wave of lunar exploration started after that while apollo was still the uh, central piece and for the soviet union their equivalent missions were the central theme of the space age developments there was growing interest in knowing what the nearby planets look like and again we have to remember that you know at the time people did not know as to what conditions really existed on those planets so for all we know there could have been life on mars back then for all we know i mean so there was a huge curiosity driving that so the early planetary missions were sent to venus and mars as a result for mars there were initial flybys which gave us the first color pictures and look at the you know vast canals and everything that looked intriguing enough that the both the soviet union and the and nasa tried to send orbiters to mars a lot of them failed initially but some of them succeeded and eventually that led into more data being gathered about mars and 
getting to know its landforms and which are basically an indicator of the geology. So if you look at a complex landform, you can tell a lot of things about the past of Mars from that. So whatever the scientists saw at the time from the data from the orbiters and the flyby missions, it convinced them enough that, you know, we should really get down to the surface of Mars and explore it. So the Soviet Union tried sending a few missions to land on Mars. Only one of them succeeded, but by a very thin margin. It, it sort of stayed alive for only 20 seconds or so. I think it was called something like Mars 3. But the Vikings were the one which explored Mars properly. So they had two Viking orbit, uh, Viking spacecraft, which is Viking 1 and 2. And each of them was a lander and orbiter pair. So both the orbiters orbited Mars for, for a few years respectively. And the landers were also alive for a few years. In one of the cases, I think it was seven to eight years. What they did essentially was try to see what kind of, the orbiters tried to see what kind of minerals the planet has just to get a sense of the complex geology that took place in the past. And they also tried to take images of landforms and see the structures in them and see the water flows to the best resolution that they could at the time so as to make out as to what kind of flows were dominant in the past, meaning where they lava flows, for instance, like in the case of the moon, or where they flows driven by water. And that is where the mineralogy part comes in, where certain minerals can only form in the presence of water and certain form in the presence of lava. Excellent. And let's make this uh, bridge to India now. We know that, you know, the earlier part of the space uh science in India that had a lot of interest in uh, upper atmospheric research and a lot of the sounding rockets being used for, uh, you know, early atmospheric studies and so on. Where do you see this topic of Mars emerging in India and at what time frame? Because we all know that uh, 2008 is when Chandrayaan came up and then suddenly there was this uh, thrust towards doing something on Mars. Can you walk us through a little bit in the background as to how this idea of going to Mars came up in India? I think there were two obvious destinations in mind once you do a lunar exploration mission, which is what we talked about earlier as well, which is you can do Venus and then you can do Mars. But Venus presents a host of challenges, and even for an orbiter, because the temperatures would still be fairly high when you know when orbiting when facing the sun directly so that's one thing but and the other thing is that mars has been a, a central theme for nasa in the last 20 years so i personally think that that has played a definite role in getting global interest in mars including uh, india's interest in the red planet as well so for example the nasa and esa missions from 2000 plus mars express for from esa and from nasa a bunch of orbiters that they had at the time there was a lot of interest in understanding the atmosphere of mars so if you do that then if you understand mars's atmosphere then you understand a lot of things about its past so i think with the mars orbiter mission for india uh, with the payloads that it had, uh, one of the things to maximize for them was to try and get a slice of that mystery, which is covering Mars's atmosphere. So, which is why you see uh, three of the five payloads of Mangalyaan trying to target the atmosphere and try to understand from that data as to what must have happened in Mars's past. And that seemed doable from orbit because we have to remember now the technology side of it, which is since we had just done as a country a lunar orbiting mission, there was no way that we are going to attempt a Mars landing mission next for sure. 
much less a rover one, but an orbiter was definitely within the realms of possibility. What would you say as the primary science objective of uh, Mangalyaan was, or was there any primary science objective at all? Because from what I see as the mission, it was more of a technology demonstration to be able to enter the Martian uh, orbit. Uh, was there a, lo a lot of focus on science as such? Uh, no, so I'm with you on that one. I think it was a, definitely a technology demonstrative mission. And uh, whatever science was put on there was by the virtue of the fact that we are going to Mars anyway. Let's, you know, do what science we can. But it was not primarily a scientific mission in the same sense as Chandrayaan 1, 2 and Astrosat are, for example. So it, it was a tech demo mission and I think it should be seen as such, uh, which basically gives us the context we require to understand uh, Mangalyaan or Mars Orbiter mission. Because from what I learned about Mangalyaan from talking with some of the ISRO folk is that they wanted to use Mangalyaan as a testbed for getting the base technology ready for doing future planetary missions. So, so now, for example, there was uh, the Venus Orbiter in the news. For, it, it's been in the news for about one, two years now. So can you run us through quickly on what are the kind of uh, payloads that were put on board of Mangalyaan and uh, you know, what was the kind of science expected out of, out of them? Yeah, so basically it was a very small payloads package since the spacecraft was small as we discussed. The total payload capacity was just 15 kgs. Compared this to, uh, so to put it in context, a typical spacecraft to many other worlds uh, consists typically of at least 100 kg or so payload capacity, if not more. And even in the case of constrained missions like New Horizons in terms of mass, they still had 30 kg of payload capacity. So 15 kg by that reference is a fairly small payload capacity. Within that, they had five payloads. One was having a color camera uh, because, you know, images still do their magic because it, it really is very easy to relate to the public, even if you don't per se get any science out of them. But there is one aspect of science for the color camera apart from giving you good images is that it is used as a ref in conjunction with the second payload, which is an infrared imager to be able to get a grasp of what minerals might be present on the surface. Then there's the methane sensor, which was much talked about and hyped about, uh, even by ISRO. The, the idea of that was they would make a global map of methane in, the, in Mars's atmosphere and near the surface, which would allow them to know as to what really goes on both in the subsurface of Mars and also what happened in Mars's history because that's one variable that had not been studied extensively by ESA's or NASA's spacecraft. So there was a unique opportunity there. And that's why they made a lot of noise about it. So that's the methane sensor. And then uh, in its X-shaped elliptical orbit that Mars Orbiter spacecraft has, when it comes close to the surface at about 250 kilometers, then it's basically skimming the atmosphere of Mars, the edge of the atmosphere of Mars. So that's when the mass spectrometer comes in. So the mass spectrometer, what it does is it essentially identifies, it samples the atmosphere and identifies the composition of it. And that helps you uh, by looking at the composition of gases and seeing what properties they have and what characteristics they have. You can tell a lot of things about what processes might be going on in Mars. So that, that gives you such a composition. And then there was the other payload, which I personally uh, liked the most, which is the, and which is the last payload, which is photometer. In particular, they had one that detects hydrogen line emissions in the ultraviolet. 
so the idea was that so since hydrogen is the most loosely bound atmospheric gas on any planet by the way of it being the lightest they would use this photometer when they are much further away from mars and they have a global view of mars they could use this photometer to see hydrogen escaping the planet that would tell you something about what mars's atmosphere was like in the past and how dense it was and so on and so forth so these were essentially the five payloads that are there on mars orbiter mission so what do you think is uh, the novelty in these payloads considering the spacecraft and you know considering all the constraints against the international missions that are out there the methane sensor is something that was that is not there in other uh, spacecraft at least not until the trace gas orbiter arrived uh, later on at, at about 2 3 years after mangalyaan so the unique part about it was it was supposed to uh, make up parts per billion sensitivity methane map which is not possible to do even from the you know biggest telescopes on earth but other than that uh, none of the payloads are remarkable in any way per se apart from them adding more data yeah but it essentially goes back to you know it being a small payloads package and it being a primarily tech demonstrator mission which uh, indian institutions uh, were involved in the construction and the conception and the realization of these payloads because uh, as i believe this is uh, a kind of an all indian mission without any external participation right correct correct so that that's the curious part about it for me at least which was so if you in in the case of mangalyaan all of the scientific instruments are developed by various isro centers so there was no participation at least in a very direct sense from universities or institutions in india that are not directly isro so uh, that was one interesting element and the reason i point out this is this is not the way all spacecraft in india uh, science spacecraft in india have been launched so for example if we look at astrosat then there were uh, different institutions involved in the design phases and the designing of the instrument as well and the reason would be that uh, the spacecraft had to be built and uh, put into play orbit very quickly because of the timelines or what was the reason i think that could be the reason but i'm not sure the reason and the reason is that for mars sure one could say that you know the project was approved about 18 20 months before the launch date and if you miss that launch date since mars opportunities come only once every 2 years or so you would have to wait two more years and for some reason isro was in a hurry to launch you know uh, at the time that they launched which is in 2013 but uh, even if it had been the case otherwise i am not sure if they had gone that way because if we look at chandrayaan 2 for instance uh the same model seems to have been repeated of course there is one difference in that the chandrayaan 2 orbiter and even the crash plant now crash lander both of them had good scientific instruments and they had very clear science goals and unique science goals at that so the orbiter is still functioning and doing its job but even in that case the instruments are still built completely by various isro centers and there has not been any collaboration within the country or outside we know that chandrayaan 2 has taken its time to develop and you know launch so i'm not sure if that even if time were available that it they, that would be the route that they would choose so in your sense uh, what do you think can be done better to kind of do better science and also have more inclusive approach to having science being done by other institutions being involved as well so i think common things that they could do which is what a lot of these space agencies in the world do is simply collaborate with a 
you know no funds exchanged basis which is what isro has already done it's it's not new to isro so if we look at chandrayaan 1 more than half the instruments or about half the instruments were from outside countries and not just one country they were from a bunch of countries so and that included nasa and isa and so on so that's one thing that they could do where they have a no funds exchange deal and uh, it sort of improves the scientific quality of the mission while ensuring that you do not pay your uh, pay more for the mission by yourself and the uh, the output is clear again in the form of chandrayaan 1 where you know the discovery of water on the moon that is uh, for which chandrayaan 1 is rightly lauded a lot but the interesting thing to note here is that both of these instruments which confirmed water on the moon were uh, instruments from universities in the us and and that's a great thing i mean th- that's the best way you can collaborate and have greater science output while not increasing the cost of your mission and from what i've seen for the venus orbiter the upcoming venus orbiter proposal payload proposal call that they had put out a year ago i think they are doing that same model again and that would be great but uh, i'm not sure why they did not do the same with chandrayaan 2 unless there's a an overarching philosophy that we do not know about it's not very apparent and there's no clear reason why for some missions isro chooses to do everything on their own and for some they are open to some basic collaboration uh, but of course uh, apart from that there could always be more involvement with the universities and institutes in india itself not just foreign ones i mean there's no reason we need to collaborate only with the foreign people we can also do so just as well with uh, with indian universities just like in the case of astrosat so i think just in general and that is true for science output in general as well simply collaborating and putting out call for payload proposals in advance doesn't hurt and doesn't really increase the cost of your mission substantially or at all the other thing they could do is they could establish planetary science groups in in the country there is one called apex but the functioning it of it is not clear or at least not apparent to the public uh, if it's even functioning the way it's supposed to be but the idea is just like the us has uh, different groups of people from various universities who vouch for uh, missions to different planets and different objects in the solar system based on a scientific consensus as to what is the next uh, big thing to solve some sort of a framework that is put into action can really improve the quality of your science output without actually uh, you know affecting the cost in any way because it's more about then it becomes more about knowing what you want and delivering exactly that so that's going to cost you as much or even less per se and what do you think uh, is the level of engineering for the science part in terms of readiness in the indian research uh, you know institutions because uh, ultimately there are of course scientists who are looking at space science and when they conceptualize certain payloads they might need to have a certain engineering team that works with the science teams parallelly to create those payloads right and so how you know mature are uh, indian science uh, teams which uh, you know in terms of conceptualizing payloads and not just conceptualizing them but realizing them to the level of uh, doing state of the arts space science um i think that from what we see on chandrayaan 2 for instance and what we see yeah chandrayaan 2 is a good example i think of this where 
the the science part of payloads is really unique and really well thought up thought about and the fact that it's indigenous does tell us something about the fact that you know there is a capability that's coming up and it, it's possible to engineer payloads which are a notch up above the last mission that carried similar payloads which in this case would be chandrayaan 1 so i think the capability is there but from what I I can tell, it's more about the framework not existing and the lack of communication or time constraints or uh, cost constraints even in certain cases like for example Mangalyan as we discussed that seem to be the bigger blockers than the the science capability part and the capability to engineer to that uh, scientific requirement because a lot of our scientists for instance are very active in global communities Let, let's say when you have you know, events like LPSC, which is like one of the largest planetary science conferences in the world, uh, if not the largest, then you see actually a lot of uh, individual Indian scientists participating there and interacting with the crowd and they have a lot of connects. So they do not work in isolation and they there is a capability there uh, for sure. So I think it's more about an organized way of uh, doing these things, which is missing rather than uh, the, the sheer capability. How did the payloads perform uh, around the Martian orbit? Yeah, so for Mangalyan, the biggest problem was, I mean, the camera did its job for sure because it had a very nice elliptical orbit from where, from the farthest point it could take nice images. But in terms of pure science and uh, the scientific output, the methane sensor in particular, uh, it turned out that the design uh, of it was flawed and it could not in turn detect methane on Mars to the sensitivity that was required and in fact the final sensitivity turned out to be less or same as the ones that you can get on earth anyway using you know those giant telescopes at which point what they did on the recommendation of the scientists was uh, repurposed the methane sensor as an albedo sensor so the albedo would would essentially give you an idea of how much sunlight does the surface reflect and based on that it gives you some information about the composition of the surface and there's the second thing which we mentioned is the mass spectrometer that did deliver some of its goals which was to sample the atmosphere and identify the composition so it found some traces of argon in the uh, upper atmosphere of mars in at higher temperatures than or what was assumed to be the case from scientific models and that gave us some better insight into some other processes going on on Mars which we did not think could have happened but the most striking thing to me and again uh, just I think just being you know clear about it is important here is that I was looking at scientific publications that came out of Mangalyan across the across the internet and I found a list of publications PDF that ISRO has put out on the site officially and it turns out that out of the list of about I think they had a list of 22 to 25 publications of them more than a dozen or about a dozen were you know just engineering payload descriptions so I would not count that those as publications uh, scientific publications I mean and the rest about 10 or so were about the science and they were all from ISRO scientists or related scientists there. so basically what was essentially missing was after six years in orbit, we have around just 10 publications from Mangalyan and that's sort of obviously very bad. But uh, again, it's it's partly due to the fact that it's a tech demo mission, but still 10 is still a very low number. And the other obvious element missing is 
the the absence of scientists other than isro scientists who have seemingly not, either not used the data of mangalyaan or did not generate enough good science out of that data either way whatever the case may be so that's a huge vacuum of missing publications compared to any other orbiter even the indian ones chandrayaan itself has you know chandrayaan 1 despite being just a year in orbit has a huge list of publications and so does sardas maven which launched alongside mangalyaan and was you know uh, the way indian media went about it was taunting uh, maven for the price tag but in essence if you look at the huge list of publications that have come out of maven it sort of more than makes up for that price tag which is not even very high to begin with to be honest so i think yeah in in terms of science outcome for mangalyaan the the huge vacuum of publications is a bit concerning is a lot of the data captured by mangalyaan available publicly if so where ah uh, so isro says that they have the data available just as they have the data available for chandrayaan on isbcc and so on and they did put out an announcement of data availability twice as far as i could search they put out an announcement of opportunity for data from payloads in 2015 about a few months after uh, it entered martian orbit and then it put out one in 2017 and then uh, after that there was no call uh, as such uh, after that we didn't see anything else so there was one announcement uh, saying that about 32 research groups in the country are uh, analyzing and exploring that data from mangalyaan but those publications again as i said earlier seem to be missing right and uh, you also talked about the media coverage of uh, of mangalyaan and i guess you know from that perspective i mean the coverage of the media was kind of uh, i would say interesting by itself because one i guess uh, the way the media covered in terms of this only costs so many rupees per kilometer and it is cheaper than uh, gravity and interstellar or what other movie whatever movies and then uh, i guess you know that kind of uh, acts in two ways one i look at it as saying that we can do kind of uh, science at a lower cost than the others and there should be like funding for science available when you look at it but it does not uh, really look at the finer aspects of science and what is the quality of science we do right 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 so i think the media element was completely focused on one aspect of the mission and which is what you said is looking at the cost essentially and then making all sorts of comparisons to make that point in part the media did that i think because it so also spend it out in such a sense i think for planetary missions the value per unit to uh, unit money should be also considered uh, as one of the primary decision makers because inherently by the virtue of sending planetary exploration missions you are going to put a, put in a relatively huge chunk of money if the mangalyaan mission was about i think it was about 65 million dollars or about 400 crore rupees then 450 crore rupees or 500 crore rupees would have given you much more science output or just the same would have given you better science output with a uh, different approach i think the entire construct needs to be thought in that way and uh, you know if you engage any or all of those methods of better planning and collaborations and just increasing the payload capacity slightly just to get, give you a much better science output for a relatively 
lesser cost increase then all of those things would substantially improve the way you could also communicate it let me illustrate that with one example so for instance let's take maven which is the best example because again speaking of the media they at least the indian media spend out maven as you know being a very costly mission that is in seem to the public uh, at least to the general public that there is no difference between maven and mangalyan so why do we need to spend uh, almost 10 times as much money on maven when you could get essentially the same thing for mangalyan but the first thing about maven is a payload comparison and the second thing is that it's part of the mars exploration program of nasa so i'll talk about the payload part first which is remember the photometer that we talked about earlier where the mangalyan payload was supposed to look at hydrogen escaping from the atmosphere so it is looking at hydrogen in a very particular specific wavelength and it's trying to see okay what is the rate of hydrogen and the heavier hydrogen escape and from that trying to determine a whole host of uh, things about what mars might have been in the past but maven essentially was targeting the same concept but it did so in a much more versatile way where its equivalent payload which is an ultraviolet spectrometer on board it could look at not just hydrogen escaping the atmosphere but also it could look at carbon and it could look at oxygen and the reason the all three are interesting is because carbon oxygen hydrogen would give you uh, essentially would mean that this is carbon dioxide leaving the atmosphere versus also water leaving the atmosphere of mars so there is some minor water content in the mars in mars's atmosphere and of course there is a lot of carbon dioxide about 95% of the atmosphere is that so these two gases these two are very important because carbon dioxide if it is dense and if it is in a huge amount then it can keep a planet warm and that could have made a life and death difference literally for mars in the past whereas water would sustain if there is heat so carbon dioxide and water is also linked in that way if there is a warm enough atmosphere then the water on the surface would not uh, you know directly evaporate and escape so and it would still keep on flowing so maven by looking at carbon hydrogen and oxygen all at the same time and from its much better orbit which is also designed for the scientific uh, objective that it had and this is again just one of the instruments so by doing this it has been able to stitch a huge chunk of mars's history and what it actually looked like in terms of the atmosphere and thus everything else connected to it which even other nasa missions had not done before so in that way it was much more specialized and that is evident most in the you know the huge list of publications that is associated with maven which runs in the hundreds and hundreds so that is one thing and the other thing is that the reason maven cost less for nasa even though it may have costed more than mangalyan was that nasa had a mars exploration program uh, has a mars exploration program since the 90s now where they have this simple strategy of what they call follow the water they just try to look for observations related to water and evidence of water in mars's past and then try to take your curiosity from there and target the next mission accordingly so as when you have a very specific goal that you want to achieve at mars in terms of science or any planet for that matter then you can design for it effectively this is how all of what we talked about plays in uh, back again where 
if we have some sort of a overarching philosophy that guides these planetary exploration missions rather than it being you know one off which is what seems to be the case with isro at least then you would have much more you know specific missions go, uh, being sent and that would inevitably cost you less than what it would have otherwise what can we do better in the next uh, mission because we have the mangalyaan 2 that is up and coming so from your perspective uh, you know what can we do better in terms of both the, the technology and the science okay first of all right now it's not clear that what mangalyaan 2 would look like an orbiter is there for sure but the lander and ro- a lander and a rover being there has been floated around in the news but i'm not sure if they are really going to take that up and it seems unlikely at the moment so but the in terms of the most low hanging fruit it's definitely the orbiter where they could have a capacity similar to and it's likely they would have a capacity similar to the venus orbiter that they are planning for 2023 which is before mangalyaan 2 so the capacity is 100 kg and that's a good capacity to have to do reasonable science and if you have if you solve that and if you have clear science goals uh, which are unique which is identify very specific knowledge gaps that you have in the science at mars just like they did with the moon so chandrayaan 2 identified that you know there is a problem of quantification of water ice on the lunar poles which nobody has really done properly yet so they built the payload to be able to do that precisely and similarly there are other Uh, such uh, respective goals of other payloads so if we do that sort of a thing again with mangalyaan 2 then for a lesser price relative to others we could still deliver a unique as well as precious scientific output and that could help uh, you know in not just the science part but also in guiding what next technological missions should go there and the best example of that is the recent launch of perseverance targeted for river delta on mars which uh, which had flowing water and in stream in multiple streams it's a very rich area on mars which seems that this would be one of the best places to find any evidence of past life on mars but they wanted to go there for a long time but they could not because the te- landing technology was not precise enough to be able to target a small area like that so each previous mission kept on increasing technological demands while giving you science output that tells you where next to go so this is how we saw the spirit and opportunity tell where curiosity should go and curiosity tell what where perseverance should go for example so we could just you know learn from that same playbook and look at what science is out there at mars which is not being done or not has has not been done adequately and simply target that of course the payload collaboration model is also there because a lot of the times these uh, us and even european universities have payloads which they have designed for other missions and they have spare engineering payloads sitting in there essentially not doing anything so it really doesn't hurt to collaborate with you know foreigners uh, or anyone uh, really we have a new announcement from uh, government of india that um, even private companies will be encouraged to do or participate in uh, scientific missions and i don't really know what it really means uh, as uh, a practice on the ground so given you know your experience of uh, being in team industry and also having uh, studied many of these international missions what do you think is a good framework where such uh, private companies can be 
part uh, can be included in participating in such space science missions so okay so i think the best example that comes to my mind right now is yeah that of honeybee robotics where you know essentially they are de- helping planetary exploration by developing technologies required to do what you need to do uh, at whatever planetary destination you go so for example the uh, drill that is provided on curiosity and perseverance and even the insight lander on mars right now all of these drills are made by honeybee robotics i could see potentially that you know the up and coming and the present uh, potential of the uh, new space india companies essentially they could engage with isro in those specific ways where if they have let's say if a company has a specialized payload that they can build and they can do it for cheaper than you know anyone else could for the same quality then isro could just you know uh, work with them and integrate it into the Uh, into whatever spacecraft that meets that particular requirement and just fly it best example would be the uh, lunar poles where you have these very ultra frozen regions where you have minus 180 degrees celsius temperatures and the ice is very very hard and the environment uh, has no sunlight and so on so it's a basically a harsh condition so a lot of the technology uh, in other industries the expertise that exists there in trying to create such technologies they could be you know bought into the space domain and applied to areas where uh, this sort of a thing is required and again just like the frozen areas on the lunar poles there is also uh, of course the icy moons in the much much uh, distant future i don't see isro taking on you know missions to the outer solar system anytime soon but i mean i would be more than happy if they uh, to be proven wrong here Uh, if we happen to do missions to the outer solar system and uh, uh, let's say we go to europa or enceladus then these technologies would again play a big role but the uh, again the problem here is fundamentally of the a unified philosophy being there to to actually target that and make that happen absolutely i totally agree with you there so when you want to do you know cutting edge science or cutting edge space science cost becomes uh, as a factor and we talked about it already quite extensively but what do you think in terms of the indian setup there's always a trade off here in terms of asking for funding from the government versus what you can do with the funding you get because even with a 75 million dollar price tag that uh, mangalyan has is substantially low money and i guess it's also about isro asking that sort of a money in terms of budget to be able to do premium science right so how do you think Uh, you know we can solve this problem where there is a narrative for isro and scientific institutions to ask for more money so that they can do better science to be honest i don't know an answer to that as to how we would go about that but if i were to take a look at isro's budget in the last 5 years and how it has increased o- over time and we look at one this this one thing that pops out is the gaganyaan program where a substantial sum of money has been allocated to that and the overall funds have increased as a result uh, for the total isro budget that sort of thing happens when you have an organizational level goal uh, to do that if there is a compelling if someone is able to make a compelling case for making uh, planetary exploration as an organizational goal then all of these auxiliary things would automatically be put into place uh, to make that happen just like you know kaganyan is being worked on and uh, it be and 
money is being poured to make sure that it happens again but i'm not really the best person to uh, ask this sort of thing so yeah i think that's a fairly good explanation from uh, you know what i can see as well so what is the next uh, 10 years looking like for india in terms of space science we discussed venus orbiter we discussed uh, the mangalyaan 2 orbiter and possibly lander and rover but can't really count on that and then there's two more astrophysics missions which is also interesting so there's a successor to astrosat 2 and astrosat was interesting capability wise even though there were a lot of issues with the data pipeline end of it but capability wise it was a very interesting mission and unique in certain ways so astrosat 2 coming up in the in the next decade and there's also a dedicated mission called exposat which i was uh, was intrigued by when i came across it it's a single payload satellite and that's what interested me a lot because that seemed to be the case where they knew exactly what they were doing so exposat if i remember correctly what is it supposed to do is launch in about one or two years from now on a pslv so it's a small satellite it will be put in earth orbit and its goal is to make specific measurements about the polarization of x rays coming from specific cosmic object known as pulsars and that is something which no one else has done adequately to the best of my knowledge uh, and at le- and that's also what the uh, isro website claims so i'm going to go with that for now and the single instrument has been built by the raman research institute so there is collaboration outside uh, the isro organizational unit uh they made the payload for it and it's going to fly I, and i was like this is fantastic i mean if we do that sort of thing for various other planetary exploration aspects then you know we could have a lot of good science coming up uh yeah so i think that's one thing and the other thing is of course uh we should not forget the earth because there's also a lot of earth science going on so there is nisar coming up in the uh next i think i believe the launch is next year where they have collaborated with nasa on on, on a synthetic aperture radar project for giving you a uh, much higher resolution views Uh, of various aspects of earth than is possible now and also uh, it claims to have give you uh, much faster coverage then there's the aditya solar orbiter which will study the sun from afar as compared to the parker solar probe from nasa and isar solar orbiter which will be studying the sun from much closer uh, in fact parker will be right in the atmosphere of the sun for most of its scientific objectives uh but what aditya will do essentially is give a much more holistic view of the sun it would observe the sun in multiple wavelengths uh track solar activity and it also has in situ instruments to detect the particles coming from the sun so it can detect those particles as they pass by the spacecraft and the magnetic fields associated with them so basically aditya is more in line with the other solar orbiters that nasa has placed at the same point where aditya is going to be which is lagrangian one point between the earth and the sun apart from this these science opportunities i am not aware of any specific ones that are going to come up soon except for the one proposed spacecraft for detecting exoplanets i forget its name but there is one project proposed for exoplanets which is going to essentially be like kepler was for nasa where you put a space telescope which is tailored for finding exoplanets using the transit method but the launch date for it was floated to be around 2028 that seems like very long time so i think i would not 
not counted in the near future time frame. And then there's of course Gaganyan where you could get a lot of science experiments which are biologically in nature or have to do with the physics of microgravity environment. So the International Space Station has been host to lots of biological experiments both in the form of microorganisms being tested for radiation resistance and their ability to thrive and reproduce in such environments so that we could one day possibly use it to for example on habitats on Mars for that matter and so on and then there are experiments with plants there are experiments with microgravity physics with fluids and so on so if Gaganyan project envisions a long-term space station then there are definitely opportunities for many such experiments given that you have enough payload capacity for that and dedicated modules for that just like you have on the International Space Station. Since ISRO has not really shared much about the future plans of the Gaganyan program, we can't say for sure, but if they are building a space station, it is reasonable to assume that this would be the direction. My final question to you, Jatan, would be where can people read more of the things that you write? All of my science articles and space exploration articles can be found on my website, jatan.space, as simple as that. You will find articles on nearly all topics of space exploration and science covering from the moon, which is sort of my favorite object then planetary science space technology that enables these things human space flight space missions in particular which seemed interesting to me and then something about astrophysics and interviews with certain people who have been in the space industry for a while and so on yeah definitely encourage listeners of this podcast to go check out jatan's work and also support him on patreon on that note let me just say that so the thing about science writing is that a lot of the a lot of the earnings on web publishing comes from ads uh, directly or indirectly so i'm trying to go with the model where i do not have any ads on my website at all uh, regardless of who the reader is and which is where the patreon comes in is i think the you know people funding model works better where people who are curious about the topic and like the work that i do they could fund me directly rather than me having to prioritize ads over the content because the content is more important in any way, in every way. So I urge readers, if you like my work, then you can consider supporting me on Patreon. So Jatin, uh, thank you very much for taking an hour of your time, you know, speaking with me. It's been a very insightful episode on learning on many things with respect to interplanetary exploration and science. So thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me and giving me the opportunity to speak on this uh, topic that is very uh, important and also close to my heart and for building the entire community of people who care about space exploration, space technology, space science and all the things that are tied to it. So thank you uh, for you know doing that.